Hello and welcome to Reflections with Raja. My name is Raja Butter. I use they them pronouns and I'm so excited that you're here today as I engage in an incredible conversation with Dr. Tabitha Jones-Jolivet, a good friend and incredible advocate, educator, activist, and so many other things. Um, before we get started, I want to just recognize that music that just led us in today. It's called Blue Highway by Poddington Bear, thanks to freemusicarchive.org. And so let's get started. So Tabitha, uh, I'm so excited that you're here. So just with a really simple first question, what's your story? How, who are you? So that's such a good question, Raja. And I have to say, um, it's not simple for me to answer. It's sure. so funny. Like when I, when I sort of hear you ask sort of who are you, what's my story, um, I'll have to say that what comes to mind for me is uh, this first thought, and that is this is a super challenging question. Mm. It also brings to mind for me the reason why it's challenging, and that is that I am becoming. I'm in sort mm. of this in-process reality that on one level, um, I feel like I'm continuing to learn who I am. Sure. Right. Each new day unfolds and brings something new. But but more importantly, I think what what this brings to mind for me, this very important question is the idea that my story is a story within many stories. Mm. And what I mean by that is that if I'm going to be intellectually honest, I have to acknowledge the stories of those who've gone before me. Um, that's a part of my own sort of way of being in the world. And so I think that one way that this gets articulated beautifully is in the words of one of my elders, Alice Walker, mm. who says, and I'll, I'll recite this because I think it's so instructive. Alice Walker says that to acknowledge our ancestors means we are aware that we did not make ourselves, that the line stretches all the way back, perhaps to God or to God's. We remember them because it is an easy thing to forget that we are not the first to suffer, rebel, fight, love, and die. The grace with which we embrace life in spite of the pain, the sorrow is always a measure of what has gone before. Hmm. So I situate my story this very elusive and, and enduring and yet unfolding story in my own life within this deeper context, right? So this brings to mind my um, maternal and paternal grandmothers, right? It brings to mind um, my paternal and maternal grandfathers and all of those um, in my family of origin who've gone before me. And it also brings to mind sort of the chosen family that I've collected along the way, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those who, um, who do life with me in relationship, whether it's in the ancestral realm and or in the realm among the living in these embodied bodies that we have, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. all of that comes up for me and I don't have an easy answer other than to say, I can remember being a little black girl growing up in the U.S. South. And I remember at least two stories that told me something about my life. One I experienced as true and one that I'm constantly striving to unlearn. 
Um, one was a story about my inherent worth as a black girl. Mm. Um, I learned that from my earliest teachers, my grandmothers, my own mother, um, and other women who mothered me in school, my all black school. I remember my first school was Windsor Village Elementary School, where every uh, day we sang the, the, the Negro National Anthem, as, as it was called in the 1970s. Um, mm. And in that anthem, it was an invocation on my life, but embedded within it was the idea that I was inherently worthy mm. um, and, and that, that I needed to live up to that status um, by the way that I lived and practiced. And then there was this other narrative and it was profound and life altering. And I feel that I'm still contending with it, resisting it, challenging it with alternative narratives. And it was this narrative that who I was was inherently flawed. Mm. That my that my blackness, that my girlness and other dimensions of my identity were somehow pathological. Mm. And therefore. Um, the world was organized in such a way that I needed to be at the margins of it, right? So, so imagine then who I am now as an adult striving to make sense of uh, these, these sort of twin narratives, right? Mm-hmm. Taking ownership of and striving to live with integrity um, for t- t- sort of in light of a narrative that tells me the truth about myself is is what I'm striving to be and do in my life, while at the same time I'm persistently striving to unlearn, decolonize, contest, and 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 frankly to destroy the narratives that exist in the world um, that tell us that we are anything other than who we already are. Right. That that's my story. Um, So I would say that sort of to punctuate this as placeholders, if you will, I'm striving to be a womanist and I'm striving um, to to model and practice practice Pan-Africanism. I'm striving to be an abolitionist and organizer and I'm striving to be a prophetic Christian. Those are some of the labels that I use to to sort of make sense out of the story that's unfolding in me. And probably the best descriptor that I use for myself, um, and my students use this for me, is um, I'm a doula, you know. Mm. Um, I'm I'm, I'm trying to birth myself, right, anew each day as much as I'm striving to to bring life and, 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 and sustenance to those with whom I, I sort of have relationship in the world. That's so beautiful. Wow. I thank you so much for just, it, it helps me understand the stories that you shared just helps me understand you in a deeper way. Um, and so many things have just clicked to me and I've just been taking notes here because I'm like, I think that you bring up so many interesting layers to, but just even starting up this idea that we are becoming, you know, both, um, for me, it just made me think of Michelle Obama, the, mm, mm-hmm. but also, you know, thinking about the fact that we are creative processes. We are not stagnant things, right? Um, and especially in this time that we are in the world, how powerful to be able to remember that, that we, we, we always have, an, every time we wake up in the morning, we have a new choice of how and what to become. Um, I think that's right. Really- 
It, it is, Rajan, if I, if I could say, um, to add to, to the beauty of what you've, you've said in response, um, in this moment in which we sort of are living, um, I really sort of struggle with, with sort of the default um, reality of pessimism, right, that mm-hmm. exists in the world. Um, and for good reason, right? Like I, I should add, like there's good reason that 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 we should be suspicious um, about what's happening in the world, and and it might lead some of us right to a place of pessimism. Um, but I was reminded by a dear friend, um, Dr. Ruha Benjamin, um, who recently was delivering a talk uh, virtually. I was reminding of something that she said by by way of a James Baldwin. And it was the idea that, and these are Baldwin's words, I can't be a pessimist because I'm alive. Right. I cannot be a pessimist because I am alive. And and Baldwin goes on to talk about how, you know, as human beings, when we come to that recognition that we are alive, um, pessimism becomes sort of an academic matter only, right? Mm. And, and Baldwin says this so beautifully that um, I'm actually forced to be an optimist. I'm forced to believe that we can survive whatever. In fact, we must survive. Mm. So that kind of thinking sort of is undergirding um, how I'm even responding to your question, which was about my story. And that is there's something that is alive in me. Uh, that I've been gifted with that has come by way of those who've gone before. Yeah. Oh, that's powerful. I think for me, yeah, I love that. The idea that simply because we are alive, we, we cannot be, we can be courageous, right? We can, we, you know, pessimism feels like giving to this larger system that is intentionally flawed in a lot of ways. And yet also we have the choice of whether or not we give in or we reclaim. That's right. Like you said, that self-worth piece. And, and I think for me, what sticks with me also is the way you put the, the two narratives of the inherently inherent worth that we, we are and exist and are evolving and the inherent um, flaws that are often put on us by these larger systems and histories and narratives. Um, And, and those are exactly the things that our ancestors have dealt with as well. And our future generations will deal with. And so what, how do we shift the narrative so that, the path becomes a little bit easier for those that come after us um, in That's whatever right. way. And I think I, I don't, I mean, I love the words of Baldwin that you just shared. It's like pessimism doesn't allow us to be able to stay on the road. Right, right, right. And pessimism becomes the playground of those who purely view our human existence as an academic matter. Mm. I think that's also what Baldwin is saying, that that some people like just sort of study and play with life, right? And it's purely yeah. an object, right? These are some of the same folks that um, invest their resources, time, and power um, to producing death, right? right. Um, and the kinds of outcomes that, that minoritize and marginalize and exploit and can ultimately kill. I think we're seeing the evidence of this at, you know, right a time of global pandemic, you know? Mm-hmm. Some folks are, are invested in death, systems of death. Right. Um, and then there are these other communities. And part of what brought us together was 
this kind of work, right? Communities that are striving toward the liberation of all people and the planet. Um, and that's really where, as I think about my own story, I'm, I'm striving to live in that space intentionally. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, this actually, I think, is a good segue into one of the other questions I want to ask you. Um, what is something that we can all do to make this world better? Or how do we contribute to the world that you talk about um, so that we're not kind of leaning into the pessimism, but actually envisioning something different? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, you are asking such great questions, by the way. Did I, can, I, can I say that? Um, sure, thank you. <laughs> be, because these are questions that I think lead us to uh, telling the truth, right? Mm -hmm. And also to possibility. Mm -hmm. um, so so one, one way that I think about um, what we might all do to make the world better is, is, is something, and, and you'll find that I do this a lot in, in when I talk and think about things, is I'm in dialogue with others. So I'm thinking about something that um, Mama Maya Angelou has said repeatedly mm. about sort of our role in the world. And one thing she says um, is that you must tell the truth first to yourself and then to the children. Mm. I realize at this season of my life that truth telling is so critically important and yet there are there are narratives that distort our truths right there are uh, ways in which some folks try to tell the truth about our lives in ways that are dehumanizing and pathologizing and they're completely untrue right um, and, and, and whole systems are, are built around those mythologies, you know? So, so I think that one thing we can all do to make the world better is to tell the truth about the reality that we observe and experience. Mm. And, and that for me is part of sort of how I think of my calling in the world. I'm striving to be a truth teller and I've, I've experienced sort of the, the dis-ease, the, again, dehumanization that happens when we don't grapple with what is true, right? Sure. Um, and then I've also experienced um, the opposite of that, and that is the, the deep liberation that resides within not only myself, but in my community and communities when we engage in telling the truth about our reality. So that that's one thing that comes to mind. And again, I'm I'm here being instructed by Maya Angelou. Um, and it's linked to this idea that everyday people um, not only are sort of called upon, I think, to tell the truth to ourselves and to the generations, but then as we make sense of what is true, we're called to struggle for our shared humanity. Right. We're called to, to put our bodies and resources and voices and time on the line mm -hmm. um, so that we go about the business of building the world we deserve to live in. So this idea of freedom struggle is part of what I think um, I certainly have taken up in my own life as as a sacred duty. That's something we say often in my communities mm -hmm. um, that I have a sacred duty to struggle for freedom. And not just my own freedom. It's not some individual reality, right? It's a recognition that my freedom is bound up with your freedom, Raja. Right. Right. right? right. And the freedom of others, including other living beings on the planet. Mm. 
Um, yeah. I love that. Um, a quick question, Tabitha. Um, do you know if your headphones are touching some anything? I'm hearing a little bit of crackling in the back. Um, let's see. So I haven't plugged in. I was moving a little bit, so I wonder if that's what was doing it. Okay. Okay. No worries. I I wonder if sometimes I know for me like it happens when I when it touches my like sweatshirt or something. I tend to hear it as well. You know, I have a necklace on too, so let me put my necklace inside my shirt and see if that helps. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for the heads up. Yeah. No. Thank you. Uh, I just want to make sure your voice is coming out clear because what you're saying is so beautiful. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah. No. This is going great. Um, so we've talked about kind of what can we do to make this world better. Um, I think for me, one of my favorite questions when, you know, often when we go to parties or just socials, often people say, Oh, what's your name? Oh, blah, blah, blah. And then what do you do is often the question. I hate that question. Right. Um, and so the question that I've started to ask is what is your gift to the world? And people often get a little kind of off put by that. Um, but I, I, I have a feeling that you're going to have something brilliant to share. What is What is your gift to the world? Oh, that's such a great question. I would much prefer that question at a party than what do you do? <laughs> right. Because what you do assumes that your being in the world, separate and apart simply from doing, doesn't matter. It's invalidating, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so when I think about my gift to the world, um, it's 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 wedded to some of the things that we've already been talking about, right? Um, the, the relationships that come to me by virtue of my sort of ancestral and living communities. Um, and it's this idea that, that's best summarized in an African proverb um, that says, that when you pray, move your feet. Mm. That's my gift to the world. I'm striving to pray with my life by moving my feet um, in the name of freedom struggle. Um, I, I do that through truth telling and speaking truth to power in particular. Um, I, I do that um, through direct action, you know, um, through writing, um, through teaching, through mothering, um, through being a daughter, you know, all of the sort of dimensions of my life that make up my one life. Um, I'm striving to really sort of offer the gift of my presence and my being in the world in an authentic way um, through all of those things, right, that I do. And, and that's not an easy thing to do, right, because we live in a world that, again, offers us uh, these narratives about ourselves that can get this really distorted fast, right? Yeah, so yeah. so it's, a, it's a daily striving, I would say, to pray and move my feet. I love that. And it kind of goes with your earlier piece of evol the evolution, the constant process and journey that you talked about. Um, if I can dig in a little bit deeper into this question, just to the follow-up. Um, sure. Can you talk a little bit about some of the organizing and activism work that you do and how that is part of this way you walk your prayers? Yeah. So, um, you know, you and I met at the Women's March. And right. I will say that that moment in my life was pivotal um, because I began to, and I'll say this in the context of the the sort of the the work I do in community with Black Lives Matter as an organizer. Mm -hmm. I was beginning to sort of recognize um, a distinction between sort of episodic organizing and the kind of sustained organizing that comes in movement struggle, and I sort of felt like. 
and rightfully so my participation in the women's march was a kind of of sort of momentary activist um, moment, right? Where, mm. where I, I wanted to show up in opposition to something, you know, and in particular, it was in opposition to all that uh, the newly elected Donald Trump and his regime represented. I wanted to, I wanted to sort of punctuate that with a big no, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so the Women's March was very much about that for me. Um, but I would say that, um, sort of to extend this thought. Um, what I've come to understand now, looking back in the work that I do in community with Black Lives Matter as an organizer, is um, the sustained role of organizing. Um, some of this organizing is really visible, like sort of a, a big march that convenes folks, but a lot of it is invisible. Um, but it's sustained, it's, it's routine and regularized, and it's done in community. So I belong to a community of organizers in Black Lives Matter. Um, and I should say that as I sort of tell you my story, I'm not speaking on behalf of Black Lives Matter. I'm simply sure. offering my own narrative sure. within it. Um, but I have been sort of called to join and be a part of uh, this contemporary struggle um, to proclaim the inherent value of Black life in the world. Um, and I do that through my participation as an organizer in our Los Angeles chapter. Um, that was the first chapter in the global movement. And you can see for yourself how uh, we are living in an era, right, um, where Black Lives Matter um, sort of has has challenged us all um, to think about all of the ways that anti-Blackness is weaponized against Black people on this planet. Mm-hmm. And what we must do um, to not only interrupt and counter and dismantle that, but to bring about a world that 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 centers the inherent dignity of Black people, um, and that's what I'm a part of in in my role as an organizer. Yeah, that's powerful. Thank you for sharing. I think that's um, when I think about the Black Lives Matter movement and kind of our current world. Um, I think so much of what the BLM folks have been saying for years at this point are becoming even more prevalent and um, difficult to not notice in the way that the systemic isms are showing up within the way the the global and national politics are playing out and who's being impacted and who's being supported and how the resources are being used to actually support people that actually need it. And I think even the particular Black folks and Black and Brown folks and Black poor folks are... Um, are being significantly impacted, right? I mean, here in right. Chicago, over 70% of um, COVID cases have been among the Black folks of the South Side. And so what does that mean? And so I think, you know, it feels like the universe is really bringing the truth of BLM's messages to such important levels and, and making it hard for folks who have been able to ignore it until now to make it harder for them to ignore it. I couldn't agree more. You know, Arundhati Roy, um, you know, says that this particular moment in time is a portal, Mm -hmm. um, as is the case for all sort of global pandemic moments, right? They become a portal for us to sort of see clearly, right? To see reality as it is, but also Mm -hmm. um, to do what you've been talking about, to to be about the work of transforming the world um, in more life-giving ways. Um, So that's part of 
what I have loved about just being an organizer with others in BLM. Um, and I just continue to evolve because of it. I'm a changed person because of it. And um, what I'm most honored by is the leadership of those who have been um, most irreparably harmed, right, uh, by state-sponsored violence. Their, their family members and loved ones have been stolen by the state um, through this violent system. Um, and, and I take my lead from them. They're the ones leading us in the work, and there's a, they're the ones that I'm striving to be in the deepest of community with. Yeah, that's powerful and so needed right now. Um... Wow, that's great. So um, one of the things, one of the reasons that I wanted to start this podcast is because I believe in the power of storytelling. I think you've shared quite a few voices already of ancestors that have come before us that are have been so lucid in their in their words. Um, and I think for me, I think about those as the voices that, I, that continue to inspire me and nurse the work that I do and the way I think about the work. What nourishes you uh, in the work? Mm, that's such a good question. So I would say that the work itself nourishes me. Mm. And, and here's what I mean by that, that, um, and again, I'm taking my instruction from Bell Hooks, mm. that self and community recovery go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no one without the other, right? So when, when I talk about movement work, um, that sustains and nourishes my own life, right? Because it gives me a sense of purpose and it gives me a narrative um, that is life-giving that I actively participate in, in shaping and building. Um, and, and it also helps me then to um, do the self-work that I need to do in my life to get quiet, for example. So one way I'm nourished is through the practice of quiet um, I practice what my sister friend, uh, Dr. Shelley Harrell, calls soulfulness, not mindfulness, mm. um, because um, my whole mind, body, heart, and soul are wrapped up in practicing quiet. And so that kind of soulful presence is part of what I strive to do, and that gives me life. Um, I would also say that I'm really nourished by the water. Mm. So if I could tell you a brief story, um, you know, because again, these these times that we're living in during COVID-19 have been particularly transformative and life altering. Um, and they also I, I have also found lessons in them. And one of those lessons was um, sort of the ways in which water nourishes me. So um, maybe two weekends ago, I was feeling like I've got to get out of the house. You know, <laughs> I just, I have got to get out of the house. And I literally felt this pull to the water, Raja. Wow. And so I hadn't been to the ocean because obviously things are closed. Mm-hmm. But I said, well, I don't have to get out. I just need to be near the water. Mm-hmm. So I got in the car. Um, I took my daughter with me. and. I just felt pulled to the water um, and I knew that I needed to experience this, whatever that was happening. And it literally, as I was driving, felt like this profound, what I would call transcendent moment where I was so present to the need that I felt to go to the water, but also present in experiencing the process of getting there. Mm -hmm. So I was driving through the canyons and I began to notice 
the clean and open, clear sky. I noticed the lusciousness of everything that was green in the canyons. Mm. And I, I just was seeing in a new way, if I could say it that way. Um, and then I got to the water and I just remembered putting my windows down just to breathe in the air. And I couldn't believe it, but, you know, I'm, I'm right outside of Los Angeles. Mm. Um, I could see Catalina Island. I could see wow. um, the, the islands um, in Oxnard. I'm forgetting their names. Oh, the Channel Islands. The Channel Islands. Right, and I could right, right. see the skyline of L.A in ways that I've never seen before. Hmm. And part of that, right, is because the earth is resting mm-hmm. um, from all of our taking, all of our pollution, all of our consumption, the earth itself is resting. Yeah. Um, and because of that, I was experiencing the gift of that rest in a way that I had not experienced before. So I, I say all that to say that the water nourishes me and that's part of how the water has nourished me recently. Mm-hmm. Um, just being with the water and recognizing our radical interdependence, right? Yeah. Um, that, that's part of um, how I find nourishment in my life. Um, yeah, just being pulled toward it and moving toward it. Um, and that is related to the organizing, the struggling, the, the practicing, right? of freedom, um, mm-hmm. that, that I feel is, is my life's calling. That's beautiful. I think for me, um, water, I, I'm an earth baby. So water has always been a, a, a love hate relationship for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I love is that I think when I lived in LA, um, the ocean would call me in ways that the lake here doesn't call me. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's something about the saltness of the water and the purity and the ability to cleanse. Um, and, for me, I would enter the water usually after work. I would just go and just play around the water. Um, but what I would do for me is at least it would allow me to realize my own potential. Um, I think mm. um, kind of going back to kind of the first question when you talked about this idea of um, the inherent worth and the inherent um, what was the word that you used? The flaws, uh, but that that the dichotomy and the the juxtaposition of both and um, right. ways that we're and so for me I think about when I think about water I think about the power of healing and and life but also destruction and pain sure uh, and and to be able to embrace the fact that both can exist it's how you actually manifest it and what you do to it um, that so for me I think whenever I think about water I think about the it reminds me of the power of the universe to always um, balance things out the way she needs to Mm. She does. Yes. I, I love that. Um, in fact, I should, I should add that when I completed that journey to the water that I just described, mm-hmm. I wrote a little poem about Ooh. the earth and the essence of what I said was that mama was sleeping and we needed to start tiptoeing around the house. <laughs> you know, I, I remember yeah. actually growing up and my mother would often say that about my dad. Y'all need to be quiet. Shh, dad is uh-huh. sleeping. Don't wake uh-huh. up daddy. So I, I was able to sort of come to recognition that our mother, right? The, the mother that sustains us all, the earth mm. is getting the much needed rest that she needs. And we better start tiptoeing because if we don't, um, we will disturb her and she sustains us and needs rest. Yeah. 
Yeah, we got to do things differently and not go back to the quote unquote normal, whatever that was before. Whatever that was before, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, I have one more question for you. Um, who inspires you in this work and just in your life and the way you are evolving and walking? Oh, that's a great question. Um, all of these are so rich. Um, I will say that for um, women come to mind. Uh, one is, and these are all women that I just, that I so deeply admire. I'm in community with each of them in one way or another. Mm. Um, the, the first of which is, uh, Dr. Ruha Benjamin. Okay. Uh, she is a sociologist at Princeton in the department of African American studies. And she studies science and medicine and technology. Um, and also, race and ethnicity and gender and power and knowledge and how that's all constructed. She's brilliant and just, just life-giving in every way. And I, I just, I'm, I'm moved every time I experience, um, her, whether it's in interpersonal relationships, but also in the public work that she does. Mm. Um, so I'm really just moved by her, and she, like all of the women that I'll speak about, are truth tellers. Hmm. That's what moves me, is when you can recognize the truth in someone else's story, um, I feel that a kinship can happen. And so hmm. I would say that's part of what I see in Ruha. Um, another woman is, um, and these are all Black women, I should add. I love it. Um, another one is Dr. Tama, another sister friend. Um, Dr. Tama is a psychologist and a sacred healing artist and also a minister. Mm. And she has begun a podcast called The Homecoming Podcast. Mm. And it is just amazing. Like I am on my own homecoming journey because of her podcast and also because I'm in community with her um, in a sisterhood. Mm. Um, And so I just, again, am moved and inspired by her and... I learned so much along with her in just remarkable solidarity. Um, Another woman is uh, Dr. Melina Abdullah. Um, She is one of the original members of Black Lives Matter, and in particular, one of the founding members of the original chapter, which is the LA chapter to which I belong. Um, She's a Pan-African Studies professor at Cal State LA. Um, and I believe that, you know, she is my tutor in this work. You know, if I could say it that way, um, I, I take so much instruction and learn so much about organizing through my relationship with her and others in the movement. Um, and I just deeply admire and I'm inspired by her. And the final person who I've never met physically, but whose work is really, transforming me is Trisha Hersey. Um, she refers to herself as the nap bishop. Uh, <laughs> nap as in N-A-P. We all need uh-huh. to get the nap. Uh-huh. And I would say that the nap ministry, which is something she founded in 2016, hmm. is about reclaiming the liberatory power of napping in the world, oh, wow. both in a material and concrete way but also as a, as a form of resistance, right? Mm. So, so if you think about, like, for example, when I think about my ancestors, especially my more recent ancestors who were enslaved mm. in this particular region of the world, um, separated, um, you know, all of the violence, right, that occurred, 
and objectified, you know, commodified even. The idea of napping was controlled. It was surveilled. It was, you, you, you could be at risk of losing your life if you went to sleep, right? Um, on someone else's terms um, was always the reality. And so, and white supremacist terms in particular. So the idea of napping as a way of resisting uh, racial capitalism, um, resisting oppression in all of its form is the way that we can embody all the things we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. We, our brains even get reorganized right through napping and sleep. And so the, the Nat Bishop, all that to say, uh, Trisha Hersey is someone that really inspires me. And I encourage your listeners to uh, check out the Nat Ministry on Twitter as well okay. as Instagram. I'm going to, now I'm ready for a nap. <laughs> we should, we uh, should do that with regularity. Remember, this is what we yeah, knew as children and totally. about remembering that which we've forgotten. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, I, Tabitha, I, I hope uh, you know how much I treasure you as a an educator, a spirit, a healer, um, and your story continues to inspire me. And thank you for taking time to share your ideas and wisdom. And, and I think for me, one of the things that I've loved the most has been your ancestral wisdom series on Facebook and Instagram, uh, and just the way you are able to bring voice um, to folks that um, for me, I learn stuff every time you post something. I'm like, oh, I'm, so I'm always looking out for it. Um, so thank you for being someone that is walking your prayers um, oh. every step uh, in the way that you live the work and for someone that um, I feel lucky to be in community with. And I'm I'm hoping that we'll have more conversations like this. Um, but please, um, folks, uh, learn more about um, Dr. Jones Jolivet. Um, I'll add a link to her bio um, some for more information and um, some, check out some of the great work that um, Black Lives Matter is doing that she's really involved with in the LA chapter. And um, now let's everyone make sure you take a nap this week. Um, <laughs> yes, that, we do that immediately. Active <laughs> resistance will be our napping. Uh, but I, and I think I love the, you know, I've never connected the that idea that the ability to sleep when you want to and when you need rest for your body and listening to your body is such a form of resistance mm. um, to the systems of oppression, particularly, and I think like you said, um, think about Black uh, Americans and the history of the way they were um, monitored and mishandled in a lot of ways uh, and what it's mean for all of us as folks that are simply by existing, resisting these larger systems of power to do that in ways that are both healing, not just healing as as an afterthought, but healing then resistance, right? Uh, And how, how much that liberates us to be able to take care of ourselves because then the liberation automatically happens versus fighting for liberation to allow ourselves to be able to take care of ourselves. That's right. That those things work together. They're they're not meant to be in opposition and that sleep, good, good sleep. We know what that does. It it's generative. It's Mm -hmm. life giving. Right. Um, And it's also wired into our existence. Um, So when we pay attention to, these natural rhythms in the world, as opposed to the 
constructed rhythms that are about our demise, right? Mm. Um, I think that when we listen to those things that we know to be true, um, we can organize the world we all deserve to live in. I love that. Well, on those words, thank you, Tabitha. Thank you to everyone that's listening and look forward to another episode of Reflections with Raja. Talk to y'all soon.